welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The CDC has labeled C. diff as an urgent antibiotic resistant threat in the United States, given this pathogen leads to over 220,000 hospitalizations and 13,000 deaths annually. A primary issue surrounding C. diff treatment is the 25% rate of recurrence after initial cases and up to 60% after the third event of recurrence. Recent guidelines have pivoted towards recommendations of medications that appear more costly but may also be superior in preventing recurrence as compared to conventional methods. Joining us on today's podcast is Dr. Andy Weiner from Mayo Clinic Health System La Crosse to review the most recent guideline-directed C. diff treatments with a focus on recurrence and to discuss relevant primary literature with an emphasis on the cost-benefit analysis. So the objectives of this uh, presentation are to primarily discuss the recurrence pathway and why recurrence in C. diff is such a big deal. So first of all, we are going to describe the pathogenesis and risk factors of C. diff infection and reoccurrence. We'll also review the preferred treatment modalities for prevention of C. diff recurrence. And then finally, we'll be describing the cost-benefit analysis supporting guideline-directed management of C. diff infections. So to begin, I just want to give a little bit of a background of Clostridioides difficile, or I'll be referring to it as C. diff, and just give us a little background on that organism. So as far as the history of C. diff, C. diff was actually not isolated until the year 1935, where it was first isolated from the stool of a healthy infant. In 1970, this is when C. diff was first associated with human disease. And then in 1978, this is when it was discovered that C. diff was the primary organism responsible for antibiotic-associated diarrhea. As of today, in 2023 and onward, it is one of the leading causes of hospital-acquired illnesses in the U.S. So looking at our epidemiology of C. diff, and these are per CDC, uh, annually there are about 460,000 cases in the U.S. every year, and that includes both community and healthcare-associated CDIs. And then also there are 30,000 deaths annually in the U.S. every year. From the different types of the different rates of C. diff, uh, as far as hospital-acquired CDI, those rates have actually started to downtrend in the last decade, whereas community-acquired CDI rates have begun to increase. However, uh, recurrence rates have uh, remained primarily stagnant and stayed about the same in the last decade. So just to give us kind of a, a gravity of the situation and understanding of where C. diff really falls on the, on the CDC threat level, uh, just to introduce those different threat level designations. So at the very top, the most urgent threat levels are urgent threats, and they are defined as germs that require urgent and aggressive action. Next are serious threat, threats, which require prompt and sustained actions. Third are concerning threats, which require careful monitoring and prevention action. And then finally at the bottom, they have a watch list. So these germs are uncommon or full burden of these germs are not fully understood yet. 
So this is going to introduce us to our Poll Everywhere questions. You can respond at pollev.com slash mayorx or download the app. Uh, the first question is, which CDC threat level do you believe CDIF falls on? And this is just a question to kind of gauge the, the audience and determine where we see this as a threat. All right, so it looks like most people think this is considered a serious threat. And actually, this is considered by the CDC to be an urgent threat. So it is at the very highest level tiered of uh, uh, CDC level de designations for threat levels. And then to discuss the bacteriology, C. diff is a gram-positive rod-shaped anaerobic bacterium. It can exist as either a vegetative or a spore form. And its virulence factors are primarily due to two different toxins that it produces, toxin A and toxin B, with toxin B being the primary driver of pathogenicity. So to give us a little bit of a idea of what the C. diff cycle looks like, because it's important for the reoccurrence pathophysiology, uh, C. diff exists as spores that can then germinate into vegetative cells. And how does this work in pathophysiology? Well, the spores are first ingested into the GI tract. And from there, the spores undergo germination from primary bile acids in the gut. And once those spores germinate, they become vegetative cells, which are capable of toxin production. And as we discussed, those toxins are what drive pathogenicity. Once those vegetative cells no longer have the nutrients needed to produce those toxins, they can or will revert back into spore form and the cycle repeats itself. For the pathophysiology, there are really two different pathways that C. diff can take once ingested and colonized into the large intestine. On the left, we have healthy gut flora. So your, your typical person without immunocompromised status or not taking antibiotics. In a healthy gut flora, those microbes will convert primary bile acids into secondary forms. So they're in a sense taken away the capacity of the C. diff to germinate because they're taking away those primary bile acids. And in that case, that's when we have asymptomatic C. diff. However, in disrupted gut flora, C. diffs are able to germinate from those primary bile acids, and that's when we have pathogenic C. diff. So once germinated, those vegetative forms will produce toxins A and B. As far as the recurrence pathophysiology, sporulation pathway produces more spores and can lie dormant in the host. From there, those spores are intrinsically resistant to antibiotics, attacks from the host immune system, and they are also resistant to bleach-free disinfectants once in the environment. This persistence of CDI in infected patients will lead to recurrent CDI and also cause transmission between hospitalized patients. So what is recurrent CDI and how do we define it? So recurrent CDI or RCDI is defined as an episode of CDI occurring within eight weeks of a previous episode. The incident rate of uh, CD, recurrent CDI actually increases with the number of reoccurrences. From the first episode, 15 to 30% of patients will have recurrent CDI. Following the second episode, that number increases to 40% of patients. And then if a patient has more than two episodes, that number escalates even further to 45 to 65% of our patients will have recurrent CDI. So what are the common risk factors for recurrence and how does this work? So one of the common risk factors is advanced age, and that includes our older population, patients aged 65 and older. So the incidence rate increases with age, 
and we has been demonstrated from studies that have shown that individuals aged between zero to 64 primarily had probabilities of recurrent CDI between 25 to 27.1%. However, in our older population of age 65 or older, we see that that number almost doubles or more than doubles to 58.4% of our older patients above the age of 65 having a probability of recurrent C. diff. Another common risk factor is antibiotic usage for non-CDI infection. This is our most important modifiable risk factor. A meta-analysis study from Deshpande et al. in 2015 showed that antibiotic use was an independent risk factor of recurrent CDI with a risk rates of 76% uh, in patients who are on antibiotics. Another common risk factor is gastric acid suppression. And this can exist as either a uh, proton pump inhibitor or a uh, H2 blocker. But the rate of recurrent CDI with gastric acid suppression was found to be higher in about 22.1% of patients versus 17.3% of patients. Another common risk factor are hypervirulent strains. And these are patients with certain strains that would, would otherwise have a higher recurrence rate than patients with non-hypervirulent strains. And then finally, another common risk factor is prolonged hospital stays. All right, so the next assessment question, which of the following is the most significant modifiable risk factor for recurrent CDI? And that includes gastric acid suppression, advanced age, use of antibiotics, or prolonged hospital stays. So I think the, the audience nailed it. It is uh, C, use of antibiotics. Uh, as we discussed, modifiable risk factor. So advanced age is not something that we can modify. Uh, for answer D, prolonged hospital stays, although we want to mitigate the length of a hospital stay, that's not really something that we can control all the time. And then for gastric acid suppression, although there have been studies that show that recurrent CDI is uh, more prevalent in patients with a type of gastric acid suppression, it is not quite as significant as the independent use of antibiotics. All right, so the next part of this presentation will be reviewing the treatment and prevention of CDI. So to give us a little bit of a timeline of the different CDI pharmacotherapy used, uh, metronidazole and vancomycin have been primarily our standards of care over the last few decades. However, there have been increasing rates of resistance with use of metronidazole for CDI. And then more recently, we've had uh, fidexomycin released or introduced in the last decade, which has been able to show that it has the same efficacious rate as vancomycin, but it also helps to prevent recurrence. So superior to vancomycin in preventing recurrence. And then finally, in the last few years, we've had the introduction of a monoclonal antibody, bezlotoximab, which can be used in, as an adjunct agent for prevention of recurrent C. diff. So to review our oral options for treatment of C. diff or our treatment of C. diff infection, excuse me, metronidazole is a medication, as I said, has been used as a standard care of therapy. However, it is become, starting to become non-preferred for the treatment's indication due to growing resistance. It could, still has a place in treatment for fulminant illness or non-severe C. diff infection. And then vancomycin can be given as a conventional or pulse dosing for the initial or recurrent CDI, or it can be used and has been used as a prophylactic agent for recurrent CDI when a patient is receiving concurrence antibiotics. And then finally, 
Our newest agent, fenaxamycin, can be given as a conventional or pulse dosing for initial or recurrent CDI. So how does fenaxamycin work and why does it give us a little bit different rates of recurrence in our, our patients? Why is it more efficacious at preventing recurrence? So fenaxamycin is a macrocyclic antibiotic with a much more narrow spectrum of activity. It disrupts the gut microbiome to a lesser degree than both vancomycin and metronidazole. So because it disrupts that normal gut flora a little bit different, or not at all because it's so specific to C. diff, it helps to prevent reoccurrence by preserving that normal gut microbiome. And then to briefly discuss the prevention of reoccurrence with our newest agent, bezotoximab, it is a human IgG monoclonal antibody that binds to C. diff toxin B and neutralizes it. Earlier, we discussed that toxin B is the primary pathogenetic driver of C. diff, and that's why that is the target for that, that drug molecule. The indication for secondary prevention of CDI includes a history of CDI within the past six months, an initial, or it can be used as treatment or prevention recurrence for initial episode of high risk recurrence in patients who are over the age or at the age of 65, if they're immunocompromised or if they present with severe CDI. The dose is weight-based and it is given as a 10 milligram per kilogram dose as a single dose during the antimicrobial treatment for CDI. So again, it is used as an adjunctive agent while the patient is receiving preferably fenaxamycin or vancomycin. And then for safety, I just want to note that this should be used with caution in our patients with heart failure, as it has been shown in studies to worsen symptoms or exacerbate heart failure. So there are two different guidelines that are used primarily for CDI. The first one being the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or IDSA, and Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, SHIA. And they released a 2021 focused update to the 2017 guidelines that started to alter the preferred regimen of CDI treatments, which we'll go into a little bit later. Secondly, as a companion to the IDSA SHIA guidelines, there's also the American College of Gastroenterology or the ACG 2021 guidelines. To compare what both of these look like, the on the far left, top left, you can see the different clinical scenarios by which we can give these preferred or non-preferred treatments. So on the top left, we see primary CDI, first recurrence, or second or subsequent recurrence as we go down. Uh, the main differences I want to point out is that the IDSA SHIA guidelines for primary CDI has actually preferred the usage of fidaxomycin over vancomycin, but vancomycin is still an alternative agent if fidaxomycin cannot be given. Otherwise, they do have the option of metronidazole, but this is only for use in non-severe illness if both fidaxomycin and vancomycin are unavailable. In comparison, the ACG categorizes the primary CDI episode as being non-severe or severe, and their treatment regimen depends on that severity score. So the ACG has uh, not, not, no preference of use for vancomycin or fidaxomycin. So that's the main difference from the IDSA guidelines. And then they also still promote the use of metronidazole if, being, if a low-risk patient is being treated. For severe courses, they prefer vancomycin or fidaxomycin or fecal microbiota transplant, which we'll talk about a little bit later. For re first reoccurrence, the IDSA guidelines prefer fidaxomycin once again, 
or the extend pulsed version of fedaxomycin or vancomycin tapered and pulsed. Whereas ACG for first recurrence still prefers either or, vancomycin or fedaxomycin. And then finally for second or subsequent recurrences, again, fedaxomycin is preferred by IDSA or the extend fedaxomycin or vancomycin tapered and pulsed or FMT. Whereas H ACG, once we get to the second or subsequent recurrence, they just outright uh, suggest FMT. So why does this matter and why are we talking about uh, these different guidelines? Well, I wanted to pinpoint the evidence used by IDSA to say that they prefer fedaxomycin over vancomycin. So we'll dig into those guidelines a little bit more and what studies were used to suggest that this is now the preferred regimen. So in 2021, IDSA and CHIA released a focused update to their 2017 CDF guidelines. There were three major updates to the guidelines at this time and then addressed the following questions. Number one, in patients with an initial CDI episode, should fedaxomycin be used rather than vancomycin? Number two, in patients with recurrent CDI, should, again, should fedaxomycin be used rather than vancomycin? And then finally, number three, in patients with a CDI episode, should bezeltoxumab be used as co-intervention along with standard of care antibiotics or standard of care antibiotics alone? So for the first answer, as we already discussed in the chart comparison, uh, IDSA SHIA recommends fedaxomycin as first-line therapy for the initial episode of C. diff infection, and this is based on conditional recommendations with a moderate certainty of evidence. It can be given as a standard or extended pulsed regimen. However, they do know that vancomycin remains an acceptable alternative. Second question is, in recurrent episodes, should we use fedaxomycin or vancomycin? And again, they recommend fedaxomycin as first-line therapy over vancomycin. Again, as standard or extended pulse regimen, but then they also, again, note that vancomycin can be given, but in, at, at this time, at a tapered and pulse regimen or a standard course remain an acceptable alternative. And then thirdly, should bezeltoxumab be used as adjunctive therapy? So for recurrent CDI episodes within the last six months, they recommend bezeltoxumab in addition with standard of care antibiotics rather than standard care of antibiotics alone. And this is, I'll note, uh, from very or conditional recommendation with very low certainty of evidence. And again, it comprises our patients with a primary or for a primary episode, we include these additional risk factors for CDI that may benefit patients with increased risk factors, which we discussed already. So going into the trials that were presented and the trials that were cited in the new recommendations. The first one I want to highlight is the Macamo et al. 2018 phase three trial, which assessed the efficacy and safety of fedaxomycin for treatment of C. diff infection. So for the background, this was an assessment of efficacy and safety of fedaxomycin for CDI patients in Japan. And the primary goal was to demonstrate non-inferior e efficacy of fedaxomycin versus vancomycin. For the methods, they used a vancomycin-controlled double-blind parallel group study at 82 different hospitals. The total number of patients in this study was 212, with 104 receiving fedaxomycin versus 108 receiving vancomycin. Both of these regimens were given in the standard dosing regimens for fedaxomycin and vancomycin. And then the primary endpoint was cured at end of treatment and no recurrence post-28 days. 
So for the results, for patients who were receiving more than two days of therapy, fidaxomycin was found to have a treatment rate of 72.2% versus 67% in the vancomycin group. The difference was 4.6%, which, which I will note is non-significant. So although they did not sh show superiority of fidaxomycin over vancomycin, what they did find that the recurrence rate was much lower in the fidaxomycin versus the vancomycin treated group at 19.5% versus 25.3%. The second trial that they expanded upon or talked about in their new guidelines was the Geary et al. 2018 Extend Phase 3 trial. And what this did was to uh, use extended pulse fidaxomycin versus vancomycin for C. diff infection in patients 60 years and older. So for the background, what they wanted to do was use an extended pulse fidaxomycin regimen to help ensure sustained clinical support. And their thought process was that by prolonging C. diff suppression, they could support healthy gut microbiota recovery. For the methods, it was a randomized control open label superiority study with a total number of 362 patients, 177 receiving fidaxomycin versus 179 receiving vancomycin. The comparison arms the, for the fidaxomycin treatment arm, they used 200 milligrams oral tablets twice daily on days one through five, and then they did every other day or alternate days therapy for days seven through 25. Or they used the standard regimen of vancomycin which is the, the one capsule four times daily on days one through 10. So their primary endpoint, what they wanted to measure was a clinical cure 30 days post-treatment duration. So for the results, what we found was that 70% of patients sustained clinical cure 30 days after the end of treatment with fidaxomycin versus just 59% of patients receiving vancomycin. The difference being 11%, and this was found to be statistically significant. And then finally, to talk about bezlutoximab, the third question, they looked into the Gearding et al. post hoc analysis study. So for background, this was a post hoc analysis of a pooled monoclonal antibody for C. diff therapy uh, from the Modify 1 and 2 data trials. They assessed bezlutoximab efficacy in patients with increased risks for recurrent CDI. For their methods, they did an analysis of modified intent to treat population with a total number assessed of 1,554, and the risk factors that they analyzed specifically were patients who are over the age or equal to 65 years, history of CDI, compromised immunity, severe CDI, and the more virulence ribotypes. For the results, what they found was that there was an absolute rate reduction for bezotoximab recipients that was equivalent, equivalent to the greater number of risk factors. So as you can see, as patients' risk, number of risk factors from that composite group started to increase, that's when we started to see that this had a more of a benefit for the patients with those increased risk factors. So for patients with no risk factors, there was a negative or a 2% rate. And then as we escalate up, uh, one risk factor and two risk factors are about the same, 14.2%. And then finally, if a patient has three or more risk factors, that's when we started to see the absolute rate reduction of 25%. So then I also wanna highlight what has changed since the 2017 guidelines and really look at the utilization of these different drugs since the new guidelines were implemented and how real world data might look. So I found a study 
that assess the utilization and outcomes following those updates by DeBerkey et al. So what they did was a pre-post study design using Medicare data. And this was released in, I believe, October 2022. Uh, for the methods, they compared CDI treatment utilization and clinical outcomes. So they did a pre-guideline period from April to September 2017, and then a post-guideline period data collection from April to September 2018. The total number of patients analyzed in the pre-guideline data set was 7,389 and 7,746 in the post-guideline period. So I have a couple different charts here to look at the different utilization following those 2017 IDSA updates. So I'll start with the graph on the chart on the left, which is the, comparing the utilization rates for initial CDI treatments. As you can see, prior to the guidelines being introduced, we used metronidazole in about four out of five of our patients. So about 81% of patients received metronidazole for initial CDI infection. Vancomycin came in at about 18% utilization, and then fidaxomycin was less than 1%. Following the introduction of those guidelines in the gray bars, we can see metronidazole rate has decreased to about 53% of our patients, 45% of our patients receiving vancomycin, and then fidaxomycin not being utilized uh, quite as much, but still doubled from previous utilization rates. So in our initial CDI treatments, after these guidelines were introduced, we can still see that about 50% of our patients receive metronidazole and 50% receive vancomycin. And then on the chart on the right, we can see the recurrent CDI treatment selection. In the blue, again, pre-guideline data, 50% of patients receive metronidazole, whereas 50%, about 50% of patients receive vancomycin. And again, fidaxomycin came in at a uh, rate of about 2% or 1.63%. Following the introduction of those guidelines, again, metronidazole fell to about half of its utilization rate to 27% whereas vancomycin really escalated up and took the brunt of that and moved up to 66% of our patients receiving vancomycin. However, fidaxomycin did increase significantly from its baseline, but it still remains very underutilized in, the, in this pa patient population. And I just want to point out that neither guideline at this point supports the usage of metronidazole in recurrent CDI. However, from this chart data, we can see that about 27% of patients from this Medicare data pool still were receiving metronidazole for recurrent CDI infection. So beyond the utilization rate, what they also did was looked at the efficacy rate with real-world data from this Medicare study. The efficacy rate results for a propensity score matched analysis for the initial CDI group, fidaxomycin versus vancomycin users had a four-week or 28-day sustained response rates that were higher by 13.5%. In recurrent CDI, we can see that that number escalates for fidaxomycin versus vancomycin with sustained response rates that were higher by 30%. So for the first time, we can start to see what this real-world data looks like outside of our trial data and kind of compare that to the trial data to further assess if this is something that really does help to prevent recurrent CDI. Then I also wanted to discuss a couple different additional modalities for consideration. So the role of probiotics, this is uh, addressed in both guidelines, but per IDSA and ACG, at this point, probiotics are not recommended by either guideline. And this is due to insufficient data at this time to recommend those probiotics for the primary prevention and recurrent CDI. 
And this is due to, as I mentioned, poor evidence with many limitations on the data that is available at this point. And then to introduce fecal microbiota transplants, uh, just to give you a, an idea of what this actually looks like. So first stool is harvested from a healthy donor. That fecal sample is then transplanted into the intestines of, another, of a patient with CDI. Organisms from this donor sample, this donor stool, helps to restore a healthy gut microbiome in the patient with CDI. So what we've seen from this process is the significant recovery of secondary bile acids, which tell us that, that gut flora is starting to function as it should as a normal healthy gut. And then just to compare the different route of installation and what the guidelines say about the role of fecal microbiota transplant, uh, Per IDSA and Shia, we can consider FMT in patients with multiple recurrences of CDI who have failed appropriate antibiotic treatments after the appropriate screening of donor and donor's fecal specimens. Again, I do wanna note that this was favored a little bit more by ACG for first recurrence treatment and then subsequent uh, re recurrences as well. And then as far as the treatment rates for recurrent CDI, it seems to be pretty effective regardless of the route of installation of uh, feces. What they found was that in the proximal small bowel installation, 77 to 94% of our patients received, had uh, treatments, whereas in the installation of the fecal sample in the choline, we saw 80 to 100% treatment rate. Right, just to give us a little bit of a summary of recurrence treatment and what we just talked about, Per 2021 IDSA-SHIA guidelines, the use of fidaxomycin is now the preferred therapy for both initial CDI episode and recurrent episodes given that improved sustained response after therapy. Again, from the DeBerkey Medicare data trial, the real world data has started to support the evidence observed in those controlled trials. Bezotoximab remains a consideration as of adjunctive therapy in, if patients have had multiple high risk factors for recurrence. And then probiotics have not been proven to be beneficial at this point because there is limited data from studies, whereas FMT may benefit those with recurrence who failed antibiotic treatments in the past. And then finally, uh, I just want to note that we still need well-designed, independent, cost-effectiveness studies that can address the cost-benefit of fidaxomycin versus vancomycin. So for the next question, it is a case question. A 68-year-old female patient is being admitted to your service for multiple loose stools in the last few days. Medical history includes hospitalization for CDI five weeks ago, which and had instances of CDI in the past year, as well as immunosuppression for concurrent multiple myeloma treatments. Previous regimens have consisted of vancomycin and vancomycin tapered and pulsed. Given this is beyond her second episode of recurrent CDI, which regimen or regimens would you suggest as possible options? So again, because this is beyond her second episode of recurrent CDI, which regimens would you suggest as possible options? Number one, vancomycin tapered and pulsed with probiotics. Number two, fecal microbiota transplant. Number three, fidaxomycin extended pulsed. And then four, vancomycin tapered and pulsed. And then from the options down below, you have option one, option two, three, or four, option two or three, or four only. All right, so the audience believes that options two and three are the most plausible. I actually think um, options two, three, and four are still viable. 
I do believe that vancomycin tapered and pulse can still be given as a regimen. And we're going to get into that a little bit just because of the cost benefit analysis and why I might still feel that way. So the answer I was looking for was two, three, and four, but uh, two and three is about 66% of that. So that's okay. All right. So getting into the cost benefit analysis. So I just wanted to give a broad overview of the cost comparisons between these different treatment regimens uh, indicated by dollar signs. So for vancomycin, we can see that this is still our standard of care, cheap generic medication to be used for CDI treatments. And that's why that's illustrated by $1 sign. Whereas fidaxomycin is about three times the cost of that, maybe not preferred by insurance plans at this point. And that's why that's represented by $3 signs. And then bezotoximab can vary depending on patient weight because it is given as a weight-based dose. And that dose obviously increases with patient weight increase. So that's why that's given a range of two to three dollar signs. A couple different model studies have been done to demonstrate or start to illustrate maybe what fidaxomycin might look like if utilized by healthcare institutions and if the cost is comparable to the use of vancomycin. So Jiang et al. in 2022 had the, a study that looked at the budget impact analysis of fidaxomycin versus vancomycin for treatment of CDI in the U.S. So for the background, they wanted to assess the budget impact of introducing fidaxomycin versus vancomycin for treatment of adults with CDI from the hospital perspective. For the methods, they did a cohort-based decision analytic model over a one-year horizon. They simulated 10,000 annual hospitalizations at this uh, make-believe make hospital. And then they had two different scenarios. Patients with no prior CDI and patients with one prior CDI were both modeled. From those two scenarios, they assessed these two different treatment groups. Group one, received 15% of patients received fidaxomycin, whereas 85% of patients received vancomycin. In the second group, 100% of patients received vancomycin. So for the results, what they found was that treatment with fidaxomycin in as few as 15% of patients resulted in potential savings. I'll show you what that looks like. So this is a chart of the annual savings utilizing fidaxomycin in just 15% of our patients. Uh, what they found at the patient level was that there was an annual savings of $74 in patients with one prior CDI versus $14 in patients with no prior CDI. And at the hospital level, what they found was that it was a pretty comparable. Uh, there was annual savings of about $1,100 in both scenarios, one prior CDI and no prior CDI. So really what this is trying to illustrate is that even the usage of, of fidaxomycin in 15% of patients uh, demonstrated that there were really no cost differences between using fidaxomycin versus vancomycin, and it could actually introduce potential savings. And most of that is based off the model study suggesting that recurrence would be much lower in the patients receiving fidaxomycin. A second study that looked at the cost-benefit analysis looked at cost-effectiveness of bezotoximab and fidaxomycin for initial C. diff infection. For the background, they did the cost-effectiveness of fidaxomycin and bezotoximab for initial CDI compared with the standard care oral vancomycin. For methods, this was a Markov model with eight health states. It was built on transition probabilities, cost, and health utilities over a lifetime horizon and a based on willingness to pay threshold of $150,000 per quality adjusted life year or a quality. 
for the results, what they found was that extended pulse fidaxomycin was found to have a lower cost or is more cost effective and had a better quality than vancomycin. And again, I'll illustrate what this looks like. So on the chart on the left, we can see the cost per patient from the, these different treatment regimens that we've discussed. For the extended pulse fidaxomycin, they actually found that at the hospital level, level for the cost per patient, extended pulse fidaxomycin was a bit cheaper than vancomycin, which was about equivalent to fidaxomycin. And then finally, bezotoximab plus vancomycin was our most expensive treatment regimen to be utilized. And then for the quality adjusted life years, I just want to demonstrate from this that the difference between extended fidaxomycin and vancomycin is pretty similar. They are both about 11.65 to 11.64. Uh, fidaxomycin on its own actually had a superior quality or quality adjusted life year. And then bezlotoximab and vancomycin uh, came in right around the middle of those two. So what this is really trying to demonstrate is that uh, between the different comparisons of these different treatment regimens, there really isn't a significant cost difference, even though fidaxomycin at the base level is much more expensive than generic vancomycin. From these model studies, they've been able to demonstrate there, that there might not be any kind of cost difference, and there might actually be some cost savings introduced with the use of fidaxomycin. And that's based on the foundation of preventing reoccurrence. So we're keeping the patients from being readmitted to the hospital. All right, so for the conclusions to the cost benefits analysis, fidaxomycin usage demonstrated inferred savings due to the reduced hospitalizations from recurrent CDI. Extended pulse fidaxomycin was actually shown to be uh, more cost-effective comparatively to the other treatment regimens. But then I also want to note that these are just model studies at this point. So there are limitations to using model studies that include um, unpredictable circumstances. And at this point, we do need some more real-world data to help support the utilization of fidaxomycin. And that's what actually IDSA and Shia also says about their 2021 focused update, is that they'll continue to add validity to and recommendation to fidaxomycin as a preferred regimen as we see some more of these uh, cost-benefit analysis studies in the real world. All right, so for question four, a 72-year-old with recurrent CDI is being admitted for treatment. They last had CDI seven weeks ago and was treated with vancomycin at this time. They are currently on ceftriaxone for concurrent UTI treatment. Utilizing the guidelines in the model study cost-benefit analysis, which treatment regimen would you suggest? A, vancomycin conventional dosing, B, fidaxomycin extended pulse dosing, C, fidaxomycin conventional dosing, and then D, vancomycin tapered and pulsed regimen. All right, I agree with 87% of you who selected B, the fidaxomycin extended pulsed dosing regimen. And that is because uh, from the different guidelines and model studies, they prefer fidaxomycin over vancomycin, so that eliminates option A. Uh, for D, we didn't really see much of a cost comparison with vancomycin tapered and pulsed versus these other treatment regimens. And then finally, B is superior to C uh, based off of those different cost-benefit model studies. So in summary, C. diff is an urgent threat to the public health due to its resistance patterns and incidence of recurrent infection. Fidaxomycin has shown both clinical and real-world efficacy similar to vancomycin, 
but with improved rates of preventing recurrent infection. The 2021 IDSA-SHIA focused update has recommended fedexamycin over vancomycin in both initial and recurrent CDI, but there is still limited usage of fedexamycin since this new change has been implemented. Model studies have begun to suggest that the benefits of recurrence prevention from utilizing fedexamycin might help to outweigh the costs of fedexamycin. And then finally, uh, larger and higher powered studies are necessary to continue to add validity and strength of recommendation to our current guidelines. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.